Hey, 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 welcome to the cost of the status quo. My name is Lindsay Lerner, and for years I've worked as a tour manager, founder of a co-working and production space for musicians, and travel business development and partnerships expert. I'm fascinated by digging into why people do what they do and how they're able to navigate challenges in unique ways. What I've observed over the last decade through my work and travel is that we often react to systems and constraints, not necessarily our truest selves. We then end up in places in our lives where we feel disconnected, dissatisfied, and ultimately confused. This is the cost of the status quo. Today we're here with Faye Almshan, an incredibly badass financier who's on a mission to make the world a better place through financial empowerment. Faye has worn many career hats over the years, but they are all attached to her broader mission. And besides, here in this podcast, we don't ever define folks by what they do. Today, Faye is here to share a bit about her journey and the tips and tricks she's learned along the way. Thank you so much for being here. It would mean the world to me if you subscribed, rated, and reviewed this. Welcome, Faye. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, Lindsay. I appreciate it. That was an awesome intro. <laughs> <laughs> Typically, we uh, go all the way back to the beginning with guests. So if you're ready, let's dive on in. Yeah, so I was born and raised in a country called Kuwait. For those that don't know, super tiny country in the Middle East, next to Saudi Arabia and Iraq and across the sea from Iran. A very Muslim, heavily Muslim population. I think it's about 96% the time that I was there and a lot of expats. So it's, I think a lot of people know that now about the Gulf states where less than a third of the country are actual citizens and the rest are just people there for work on work visas. And the very conservative, but also incredibly wealthy due to oil. And so it was a really interesting contrast of that like Muslim conservative traditional culture, but also this recent wealth that just started in the 30s. We're not talking about a little bit of wealth. We're talking about like one of the highest GDPs per capita. No taxes. Where in that ranking, so to speak, did you and your family and your lived experience fall at that time? I would say close to the top. And so is that presumably part of the catalyst that got you into finance? I wasn't, I wasn't good in high school. <laughs> I didn't get the best grades. And I, uh, although I was president, <laughs> very involved, but again, also an interesting contrast, but I didn't end up going to the best school for college. And so I went to a commuter school in Miami. It was called FIU, Florida International University. I had a great business program, but the majority of the people there were uh, commuters. And for the first time in my life, I met these people that had to work full time to support their families at the age of 18, 19, probably younger, but I, I started meeting them at 18. And they had to support their families and they had to like take these night classes. And I remember being so spoiled. I remember having an 8 p.m. night class and being like, why is this class only offered at 8 p.m.? And the professor had to be like, wake up, look around. Right. Because it's an all commuter school for the most part. Yeah. And they're, they're first generation. They're Miami, right? They're coming from Cuba, Haiti, all of these like war-torn countries where they're finding refuge in America. And I've never seen anything like that before, even though technically, if you think about it, that was happening in Kuwait, but I was isolated from it. What prompted your decision to go from Kuwait to Miami if the school wasn't that great? Generally, it's expected that you go to undergrad. When you're done high school, you go to college abroad, and those are like your four years abroad, and then you come back to Kuwait. That's like everyone does it. It's a rite of passage. And so everyone just picks a university that they think they'll like. And so it's like beaches, warm weather. <laughs> Faye's over here with some darts and a map. 
<laughs> there we go. Miami it is. I've never been to Miami. Actually, when I showed up, this is so funny. I showed up, I was like, why does everybody look like me? Like in my head, America was like friends, you know, it was a bunch of like white people around a couch with some coffee. <laughs> Everyone's dark hair, dark eyes, they're tan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and also friends, given that that's my only reference to like, not only, but like one of the major references to America, I was, oh, everybody has these nice apartments and they never work. And so I was like, this is going to be great. <laughs> I show up and the American dream is not here. People are working two jobs. They're trying to go to college. They take eight, nine years to finish college because they're taking one class a semester. My eyes were opened. 18 years of my life, I've been under a rock. If really your only context for what you thought America was, was friends, and you didn't choose to go to New York City, what was that like when you got here? Did you have other friends from Kuwait that traveled here with you? Did you have family? Did you have anybody? It was just like you all grew up in Kuwait together. And then everyone picks somewhere else to go for four years. And then, like you said, that expectation is that you're supposed to come back. Mm -hmm. Generally, people go with their friends. Yeah. So generally, they stick to their group and then they don't really interact much with anybody else. But I wanted to be a little different. I wanted to like actually be friends with locals. I wanted to like experience what it's like to live in the U.S., not necessarily just be there for four years. I knew that I wanted to be different from Kuwait. It's a tough place, you know, it's tough to like... I mean, just the experience of of living and growing up in a place and being raised in a place for 18 years and then getting transported to what seems like uh, nearly the antithesis in Miami is a hell of an experience. And so for you, being in Miami, taking all these classes, were you always intent and focused on going into finance or was that something that you stumbled into? Yeah, totally stumbled into it. I actually never wanted to go into finance. I... This is painting me in the worst picture. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was lazy. I didn't want to study. So I was like, what's the easiest thing that like people will think is a real degree? I did marketing. I was like, this is going to be a breeze. And it was. <laughs> and um, all the business students, they have to take the same classes, right? And so you have to take the basic finance course. So I took the basic finance course and I was like, oh, this is so annoying. I have to, whatever, you know? Uh, I take the class and I actually love it. I was like, this is fascinating. Oh my God. Like the way money moves, the way the federal reserve works, the different financial products, like how do people make money? How do, how do governments work? It was, it felt like it was all connected economics, politics, and business. And for that was the first time I clicked. And this is so cool. This shows the, like the power of like educators, but my finance professor pulled me aside and she was like, Hey, I think you should consider a PhD in finance. And I was like, Whoa. What do you mean, lady? You're like, I'm trying to chill. Yeah. He's like, what are you talking about? You're not a finance major? I'm like, no, I'm just doing this because I have to. And she's like, okay, it comes very naturally to you. And your curiosity is, is strong. Like you're very curious about this topic. I think that can take you really far. And I think you can, you know, we just, she was pitching. She was like, we just started the PhD program for finance. Consider it. And I was like, well, if it's not going to be that hard, maybe I should do it. <laughs> Path of least resistance. <laughs> okay, so earlier you said, typically folks start in Kuwait, they go abroad for four years, they return to Kuwait. For you, what happened next? To be quite honest, I kind of knew that I didn't want to go back to Kuwait. I always knew that, but... You know, 
I'm open-minded. I was like, everyone else seems to come back. No one else seems to stay. It's probably a lot harder to survive in the U.S., which <laughs> we're talking about a country that's so oil rich, they pay every citizen just to live there. And there's no taxes, right? So everyone's very financially well off, regardless of what you do. But I did these internships. And I remember my last internship was at a startup and that I started working there full time after. And I love them so much. And I love the startup mentality because when you're younger, or I don't know, obviously I have a different perspective from coming from Kuwait, but I always thought corporate America was like, you put your head down, you grind for like 30 years, and then maybe somebody picks you for like a VP. Right. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know much, obviously. <laughs> uh, and so I thought it was a grind and I thought it was boring and I, I knew that's not what I wanted to do. So I joined this startup and they gave me so much responsibility. And I, I was basically co-running a department with a director at the age of 20. And I was like, what is going on? We had like a team of six people. And I think that responsibility and that like passion and purpose and having a mission is the first time I ever felt something like that because people aren't given Kuwait is so wealthy and they get so much from the government. You don't see that much passion towards your career. Is there any sort of identity attached to profession in Kuwait like we do, like a lot of folks do here in the U.S.? I would say not so much other than entrepreneur. Historically, Kuwaitis have been like the traders of the Middle East and of the world. And so they used to build boats, they used to pearl dive and dive for seafood, and then they used to travel across Africa and Asia, so like India and everywhere, and trade. And so Kuwaitis have, yeah, we've always had that background of like being business people. So like, I feel like being an entrepreneur is still seen as like, like people attach themselves to that identity, but nothing else. Like people aren't like, I'm a marketer or I'm a teacher. You know, they don't. That's wild. Okay. So do people, do you have to work in order to get that paycheck? Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) There are people with master's degrees, PhD degrees that have never worked a day in their lives. Wow. That's wild. Okay. That's, that's a hell of an experience. And so then you're at the startup what was that moment for you when you decided, I'm, I don't think I'm going to go back? Or did you ever go back? It was never a moment. It was more, hey, I'm going to stick this out a few more years. This seems cool. Let me stick it out a little bit longer. And then I built this community around me and I had the best friends and these folks from Miami who were like hustlers and like showing me the ropes. And I was like, this is amazing. I did go back to Kuwait for one year because I had some visa problems. What was so good about being in the United States, whether it's Miami or if you migrated from there, that made you stay? Or was it more wanting to push against and rebel against what was historically done or the path that had been set out for you? That is an excellent question because it's something I've been like struggling with recently. For the longest time in my life, I was running away. And that's like what dictated a lot of my actions. I'm very fortunate that I made a lot of the right decisions, even though it wasn't for the right reason. But now I'm in a different headspace. And I think we talked about this, Lindsay, a few weeks ago. I'm in a different headspace where I'm running towards things and it feels so different and it feels so, it feels right. That's something that we've been exploring a lot on this podcast is not only, hey, I had this big life-changing moment or this click moment or something like that, or this realization, but rather how did I get there? Why did I do it? And any other 
sort of tips or tricks that may have navigated you or set you on a correct path that others might be able to use? Yeah, I love it. The tactical stuff. So I always saw myself as because I was running away for so long, I saw myself as very aloof, like very like, oh, I'm just I'm running and I don't really care where I end up. And so for the first time, I really sat down and I spoke to someone. She's fantastic. A colleague of mine. And she was like, look, here's what you got to do. Sit down and write out exactly what you want. And I'm like, uh, no, that's such a bad idea. <laughs> that's scary. That's scary. Not. <laughs> yeah. And then I was like, why would I do that? Because if I do that, then I'm letting go of all these other opportunities that could be something I like. And she's like, but what about the thing you like right now? Why don't you want to do that right now? And I'm like, dang, girl, <laughs> relax. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. She was like, sit there and write out everything you want. Write out to the detail, what it feels like, who you're working with, what your, what your purpose is, everything. Like you literally your perfect dream. And in this case, it was in the context of a, of a job. Um, but I really, I think it can be used for anything. And so I was like, this isn't going to work, man. Cause I, I'm the type of person, I'm a generalist, you know, I'll do this. I'll do a little of that. It's okay. I empathize. <laughs> right. Human Swiss army knife. I love that tagline, by the way. So yeah, I, I took that away and I was like, it's not going to work. And then the next day I just sat there and I was like, let me try. And I started writing and 45 minutes later I was done. And I'm like, whoa, okay, maybe I do know. Maybe I do know what I want. And so a lot of stuff from your childhood ends up coming back. We're like circling here where it reminded me why I left Kuwait and I, I stayed out of Kuwait. In 2006, there was the protest for women's right to vote in Kuwait. And I remember being there and I remember being like, this is amazing. Like we're changing history. And I remember that feeling and I was like, this is what I want to do. Like I want to change the world. And it doesn't mean, you know, I'm Bill Gates and I'm, you know, the lar- I have the largest foundation in the world, but it means being part of those moments. And like helping wherever you can. And so I took a look at my life and I was like, I'm not doing that right now. So why am I not doing that? And, and I made the decision. I was like, you know what? Everything I do moving forward has to be because of this purpose. And the purpose is helping people and empowering people and helping people realize that it's okay to go against the status quo. My goal in in this, in this work, in this writing, in this podcast, in the brand, whatever it is that we're really building, is that if more people can hear these stories and understand, hey, yeah, that even even to your point earlier, you said you had that idea of what the quote unquote American dream was. Is that true? Is that not true? What are ways to to attain that? What are ways that people attempted, crashed and burned? And I think if we talk about those stories more, we'll be able to assist each other and help each other more in that way. People can also see other stories and relate to them in different ways. And I think sometimes people don't. People are looking for a story that's exactly like theirs. And it doesn't have to be. Like for me, my a lot of my inspiration came from the Cuban and Haitian immigrants in Miami, where I was like, if these guys can literally paddle from Cuba to Miami, risking their lives, their children's lives, because if they catch them on the water, which is the most, don't even get me started, the most ridiculous rule, they could die. They could kill their entire families. And you hear these stories. My roommate in college, she told me the story where there was three boats leaving 
And it was a rush. It was like, they're leaving in 15 minutes, get whatever you can from home and get on the boat. And there was a boat ahead of them. They got on the middle boat, half their family got on the last boat. And there's three boats and they were leaving. First boat drowns. Last boat gets caught by the US Coast Guard. And their boat made it. And it's like, you're so happy for survival, but you're also mourning the loss of these people that left with you, especially your family. Like her uncle was on the last boat. If people are willing to do that, to better their life, to make a difference for their family and for their future, like I need to step up and I need to make a difference. And so I think you can look at other stories that are maybe not similar, but adjacent and get a lot of inspiration from them. Definitely. And sure. And I think starting with, like you said, that smallest executable step of just writing down what it is that you envision. You did tell me about that a couple of weeks ago. I've heard it other times, was very stubborn, didn't do it. Finally sat down <laughs> and wrote, like you said, like it's in there. And if you start to write and you give yourself, I think it's that signing your own permission slip and saying, hey, you can do this. You're allowed to do this. You can find 30 minutes out of your day to not be interrupted and just write and write and write. And it does bring a ton of clarity. You have your click moment after you write everything down. Are you still in Miami at this point? Or where was that startup? That startup was in Miami. I ended up leaving. I went to Kuwait for a year. I started a business there for yeah about a year and then I got accepted to an MBA program in Toronto. Awesome. Okay. So you end up <laughs> nice and warm in Toronto after uh, living it up in Miami. Let me tell you. <laughs> people tell you it's cold, but you don't understand. You don't understand what the cold is until you feel it. <laughs> in your bones. So you go there for this MBA program. Is that how you landed the next gig through the MBA program? Were there any specific professors there like you had in Miami or friends that stuck out that assisted in you navigating this roller coaster that you've been on? Yeah, it's funny because um, the MBA program, I went to University of Toronto and it's the, it's the best MBA program in Canada. And I go from you know, this undergrad in Miami where I was around all these people that were really hustling, struggling, trying to make it happen for their families. And I go to this like prestigious MBA program and it takes me a little bit back to Kuwait. It takes me back. Like I meet people who, you know, whose parents run million, billion dollar companies. And I'm like, oh, we're talking about these world problems, these economic situations and how money moves and how it should move. And there isn't a lot of perspective. And I'm like, wow, I can't believe the Kuwaiti girl has more <laughs> perspective than so many folks. <laughs> and it really cemented that I didn't want that path. I need to be like true to who I am. You asked a question earlier about like, did I always want the US or was it always running away? And after being in Canada, I definitely wanted to be in the US. There's something very interesting about the hustle that you find in the US. And I, I know that's a bad word to use now. It's, there's, there is a toxic hustle culture, but I think there's something very inspiring about being in the US and being in a country that like allows for open innovation and allows for the smartest people to come together and build things that no one even thought was possible. And I'm very inspired by that. And I wanted to be around that community. I wanted to be near Silicon Valley. I wanted to be 
near these immigrants that have these stories. You finish up this MBA program and what did you end up doing versus what did a lot of the folks in your program do? I think uh, most people after the MBA generally do consulting or investment banking. That's like <laughs> kind of push you to do it. Career services, like, do it. Bring up our stats. High <laughs> yeah, <stuff. right. laughs> Here it is. Silver platter. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to stay in the startup ecosystem. So I worked in a startup for a short stint, but then I ended up going into venture capital. I joined a company called Forum Ventures. Well, at the time, Accelerprise, uh, we rebranded and it was a smaller fund. I didn't, I didn't know that much about venture capital. I mean, I knew that like startups needed money and they gave money. <laughs> that was the end of it. And you knew how money flowed or was supposed to flow. So it seems like the spot for you. Yeah. I, really, I liked it there because of the team. I met uh, my manager during the interview process and I was like, this is really cool. I think I can learn a ton here. And I did. It teaches you a lot about the world and how people think. And we did a lot of good work. We were, I think, I don't want to misquote, but I think at the time we had some of the best stats for VC in terms of investing in diverse and female founders without having a diverse or female mandate. We were, you know, we could invest in anyone, but we were making an effort to find these founders. And I felt really great about that. I felt, you know, I mean, we all know the stats, like women get what? <laughs> I don't, you don't even have less to than 1%. Yeah, less than 1%. Black founders get what? Less than 0. 0.00, whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. No, it's terrifying. And so to have a fund that actually cared about that and like the leadership, the partnership was really serious about it was really awesome to me. And I, I felt like I was making a big difference by changing the startup ecosystem. Was there a specific instance along the way, whether it was in Miami or in Toronto or after you joined Forum or Accelerprise, was there something other than that moment that you talked about earlier about being in Kuwait and talking about and fighting for women's rights? Was there something that light bulb that went off for you or some other circumstance that really pushed you towards focusing on empowering other people? And then was VC a path to do that? Or was VC a path for you to learn as much as possible to improve yourself to then go out and continue to further that, that personal mission of empowering others? I knew going into VC that I wasn't going to stay there. I know that I'm like an entrepreneur at heart. I want to be in an early stage startup. I know I like the, the grind, the solving complex problems. Again, always trying to run away from finance. And people are like, why? You're so good at it. Come back. <laughs> So I, I knew that going in, I was only going to stay three to five years, learn as much as possible, try to impact the industry as much as possible, try to impact the fund as much as I could. And the impact we made is that we were investing in these founders. And I remember this one conversation I had with a female founder of color. And I was like, hey, man, like, we need to get more people like you. We need to invest in more people like you. I was going to say, you found one. Yeah, we found <laughs> one. <laughs> They're so hard to find. <laughs> no, no. One of the ones that we invested in, I had a conversation with her and I was like, Hey, you know, I'm so happy we did this. Like, how do we get more founders like you? And she blew me away. She was like, you know, the majority of us are already privileged. These people that cannot take a salary for two years are probably already very privileged. And she's like, I mean, it's great because what happens is we take it back to our communities, but it's a long-term thing. And it started sinking in where, who are the people that you can invest in? They're generally people that have really, went to really good schools 
And the reason for that is because not only because of the education, but because their contacts, they can sell their product faster. They're more likely to know more investors. They're more likely to, you know, be around money and be around deals and be able to like really make it happen the first few years of their startup. And if they can't, they have to bring somebody else on their team that can. That makes them more investable. And so even though we were saying, oh, you know, we're investing in this many women or this many whatever, at the end of the day, they were just as, or not just as, that's not fair to say, but like very closely <laughs> up there in terms of like privilege. And so you're not really empowering people that came from the worst situations. You're, you rarely find that a founder that, you know, didn't have anything and then they make it. And so that was one of the moments. It didn't click right there, but I kept thinking about it. And eventually when I decided to leave and join an impact startup, that was one of the moments I, I referred back to where I was like, yeah, I can make a bigger difference for a lot more people a lot more people that wouldn't have had that opportunity from anybody else. And a more immediate impact rather than playing that that long game. Because I think just now, folks are really, really starting to focus on diversifying their portfolio founders in terms of age, race, ethnicity, gender, identity, et cetera. And so that still is a huge long game. People who are investing, all of the stats right now that are out for investments that have been made have historically been on white men. And so we're not going to be able to see the impact of the investments of, of other folks for 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. So it'll be interesting to see. It's a long way down the open road, but I've got my shoes tied on tight. No fear in my eyes. Now that you're out of, out of the VC realm, what are you focusing on? now? And how is that more closely related to that impact and empowerment that you're looking to have? Yeah, I joined a startup called Resolve. I actually found them after doing that exercise where I wrote out exactly what I wanted to do. I found them on LinkedIn and it checked all the boxes. Because we like to be super, super tactical here and give people as, as many resources as possible, because obviously going against the grain at the beginning, I think can be a much... Uh, tougher path, I think, in the long run, that if people choose the more, quote unquote, comfortable path, it seems easier from the jump. But then you look back on your life and that can be, from what I've heard, a hard pill to swallow. So if you have any any of those tactical steps or specific prompts that you used when you were really going through that exercise that led you to manifesting this new role that you found? Yes. My sister-in-law, she runs a coaching business and, you know, she's always experimenting on the family. And so she's like, you want to do this session? I want to practice before I run it on like clients. And I was like, yeah, for sure. Let's do it. I love it. It's like, every time I do it, I come on, I'm like a different person. I'm like, this is amazing. So we did a session with her and she created her own framework for finding your passion. And she's, let me give a quick shout out. Crystal, you're amazing. <laughs> she is, she went to Columbia, Oxford, incredible. I'm incredibly sharp and she spent her entire life dedicated to like education of young children in Nevada, which is one of the worst states for education. She's a fantastic person. And she runs this coaching business on the side and, you know, she ran the session on the family and one of the frameworks she had blew me away. It was, and I hope I don't butcher this, but it was basically what are you good at is one piece of the Venn diagram. The second piece is what are people willing to pay you for. And the third piece is how are you making the world a better place? 
And I'd never seen a framework like that because usually they skip the last piece. But Crystal, because that's how, that's how she thinks and that's how she committed her life to like these kids. So she's like, yeah, you have to help someone. If you don't help someone, it's going to be meaningless. And so I wrote it out and I was like, I'm really good at finance. <laughs> I'll make sure to, to link to that where folks can find those different templates because they've helped me tremendously. So, and obviously it worked for you. You go through this whole exercise. You're like, damn, I am good at finance. I guess this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> this is what I'm going to do. So now walk me through how the heck you end up at Resolve. Yeah. So it came down to, I want to change the world and I want to help people. And I know it's going to be in finance because it's incredibly predatory space. And the people that are financially illiterate struggle the most and will never get out of whatever bad situations, whether it's debt, which probably is, or whether it's some other thing that happened to them that they can't, you know, they can't figure out how to like make their life better financially. So I was like, I need to learn about the finance, like fintech space. Like I know about venture capital. I have obviously an MBA. I have an undergrad in finance. And so I wrote up, okay, I need to probably work at a fintech and learn all of this because I can't do it from the outside looking in. So when I did that exercise, writing out two pages, I wrote out specifically my next goal, which was getting a job in fintech. I was like, I want it to be impact-based. I want to be early stage. I want to be one of the first 10 employees. I want the team to be incredibly ambitious and venture-backed, et cetera, et cetera. It was a long list. It was a very long list. And I found Resolve and I was like, looking through the website, looking at our crunch base, looking at AngelList. And I'm like, I think they hit. Well, I'm whispering because it was like scary. I, I found like, it. Oh. <laughs> and so I reached out to the CEO, like a crazy person. I'm like, he's never going to get back to me because like, they're so busy. So I reached out to Alex, the CEO. And I'm like, hey, dude, <laughs> do you, here's the deal. <laughs> I want to do it. <laughs> but you have about, you have like nine positions open and none of them make sense for me. They're like engineering or marketing or whatever. And I'm like, I'm a generalist. I just want to talk. And if you want to give me a job, will you mentor me? <laughs> you know, like just throwing it out there. <laughs> like, please. Hey, throw it out there. See what sticks. Uh, basically, basically the gist of the message was, I want to be you in the future. Can you help? And he got back to me the next day. He was like, this is really interesting. Let's talk. I'm like, get out. And yeah, two two weeks later, signed a offer letter and was on track. And what's your role there? I am chief of staff. A true generalist. Yeah. <laughs> they created the role for me. It was so funny. The CEO was like, well, there's this thing pop, you know, people are doing it now, chief of staff at startups. But honestly, I'll give you whatever title you want. I'm like, cool. I'll take it. It's fine. It's so funny because when you're a generalist, sometimes you can feel really lost. And you're like, what am I doing? I'm doing, you know, I'm in all these different industries. I'm doing these different functions. Do I really have a passion? Do I have a career path? And then you're like, no, there is space for generalists. It's just because they're so hard to define, people struggle with them. But that's why if you are a generalist, I would say join a startup, early stage startup, because they love generalists. Because You need to just plug all the holes. And so as chief of staff, the coolest thing is you get to shadow the CEO. So it's like a CEO in training kind of position. And I also get to just help him with his workload. So I'm doing whatever the CEO would do, but given that he's so busy, I can just take whatever projects off of his plate. And yeah, let me tell you, it's been a few months and fintech is complicated. <laughs> is there a certain way that fintech currently operates versus how 
resolve is doing it versus how maybe not only resolve envisions the future, but also how you envision the future of fintech at large. Resolve helps people get out of debt. And the way that we do this is we help folks that are in, you know, really severe cases where they're not able to make payments on their debts anymore. We help them negotiate with their creditor. So cut the debt in half or whatever the case is, and then create payment plans without interest rate. And it's because people get caught up in these debt cycles that are so predatory and so horrible. And people are just paying, you know, doing minimum payments, which is you're just paying the interest. So we're really trying to get people out of that cycle and into not necessarily debt-free, but like an educated debt step. The way that it currently works in the industry is they charge people for whatever whatever they save you. So let's say you have like a 10K debt, you save $5,000, they'll charge you $2,500. So really <laughs> they're taking half of your savings. And some people are okay with that. That's fine. But I think there's a better way and, and Resolve does too. And that's what Resolve is aiming to do. Basically, it's pay what you think is fair. So after we help you settle, we ask you for a tip. And so you can decide, you know what? Right now, I can't do it. I can't tip. Or you guys really help me out. I can't do the $2,500, but you know, I can do $500 or whatever it is. And the way that we do it is by automating the processes, right? What a lot of people are trying to do and how they try to disrupt industries. And so I think... There is a future in which all of these, like, there's a lot of fintechs right now that are trying to help people. I, I, I truly believe that. I see companies like Chime who are giving, you know, no fees, which you, if you're a bank or if you're, you know, a financial institution, you're making so much money. Why are you charging people for every little thing? Monthly account fees, overdraft fees. And usually you're charging the people that can't afford it the most. Yeah. Chime has no fees and pays people two days early. Companies like Robinhood letting everybody be an investor. Back in the day, like you couldn't day trade. That shit was expensive. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And now with like crypto and like blockchain, I know they're like trendy words, but I do think people will figure out ways to use open banking so that it's more accessible. And I think Resolve is on that like, oh, I learned this in my MBA. There's like a curve, a disruption curve. We're on that curve. (laughs) (laughs) I paid attention. (laughs) Um, and I think people will start realizing how they've been taken advantage of by all of these banks, these financial institutions, um, and jump on the, the fintech bandwagon. Well, the, the non-predatory one. In a perfect world, if Faye could wave a magic wand and really truly be the empowerment of finance across the board, what would that look like to you? I would say it's a world where predatory behavior is illegal. Because we, we can do that. We just need some regulations. Um, yeah, I think, and, and don't get me wrong, um, there are regulators that are like working on that right now. I think like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is like doing a great job. They're like really trying to help people get out of debt. I think that's really cool. I think one is regulation. I think two, I'm a strong believer in that there is ROI in helping people. I really am. And I know people think I'm crazy, but I think you can make a profit, live in a capitalistic society that allows you to innovate at this level and also help people and have people at the forefront of what you're doing. And I think more companies are doing that day in and day out. And I think that's what the future is very close, I think. Like, 
I know everyone's going to be like, face so naive, <laughs> but I'm here for it. I believe in it too. If there are companies that are allowed to thrive and the companies that are doing horrible things that are misleading, you know, aren't allowed to exist. I think consumers will make the right choice and we'll be in a, in a situation where a, they're not being taken advantage of was just step number one, two, they're being educated because they're getting the right content and three, they're passing that on within their communities, within their families. And we'll be in a place that is just at least fair because right now it's so, so unfair. Yes. Ah, oh, that was so good. I'm looking forward to creating that future with you and, and for everyone else. So if anyone else is interested, we'll be here. <laughs> <laughs> so to, to wrap up, we've asked every guest the same two questions and they are, what is the worst piece of advice that you have ever gotten? And of course, to end on a high note, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever gotten? I feel like it's not fair to ask me because I came from, you know, I think there's a lot of bad advice back home. Um, I would say the worst advice was to not be ambitious. I, I mean, you can imagine a country where there's a lot of money and there's a lot of like safety and security. It's like, why not? Like, just chill out. You know, why, why are you trying so hard? <laughs> and I got that a lot where it was like, why are you working at a startup where you have to like do all this work? Why are you working extra hours? Why are you getting more education? It's just, there's an easier path. And it's so funny because in my head, I thought I was going on the easy path. <laughs> Looking back, I was dumb. <laughs> And I feel like people get that a lot from their families. And I feel like women get that a lot. And I just, I just wish everybody would just ignore it. But I know it gets to some people. So, hey, if you hear that, ignore it. <laughs> it's me talking yes. about it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And for your, your best piece of advice. Yeah. Best piece of advice uh, was from my MBA, was from a professor. Shout out Professor Tiziana. I'm going to send her this podcast. She taught a power and influence class. And in that class, we had to do this thing where we asked people around us, the closest people, whether they were colleagues or friends or family, to write about our strengths and then have us read them to ourselves and then write about our strengths. And I was like, this is like, okay, what are we doing? <laughs> and she said, you know, you spend all of your life thinking about your weaknesses and everybody tells you, your boss, during your performance review, what do they do? They talk about your weaknesses. Here's where you need to improve. Here's where you need to improve. Here's where you suck. Here's what you're doing bad at. And it's like, but if I work on my weaknesses, I'm just going to be average at those things. But if I focus on my strengths, where could I be? Whew. Well, if you had a microphone, you could drop it because that was amazing. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing all of your tips and your tricks and your habit of doing the tough exercises and writing it all out. Super, super appreciate that. So thanks you again for being here and hopefully we can get you on again because I have a feeling there's a couple more things that you could teach us. Oh, thanks, Lindsay. I appreciate it. This was so much fun.